Hello, this is Robert Gowan. You're listening to the Mentors for Military podcast, and joining me uh, is uh, the podcast team, the regular crew. We got Rudy, we got Mike, and we've got Kat. Welcome to the show, guys. Our topic this evening is going to be on post-traumatic stress, which is a really important uh, topic in today's veteran uh, groups, and we, we want to hit on it really kind of heavy with the panel that we've got here that I'll introduce in just a moment. But according to a recent RAND study, 20% of Iraq and Afghanistan veterans suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. But that's not actually taking into account the traumatic brain injury as well as those that suffer from uh, military sexual trauma. So when you add those uh, pieces in, the percentages will go much higher. And Rudy, I would suspect that even these numbers are probably not that high considering they're probably based I'm assuming on reported cases only. Yeah, Robert, I would agree with that 100%. Man, the um, you know, and, and this is just this is ground truth knowledge, just from what I've seen uh, across the regiment, uh, the Special Forces Regiment, and, and other units. You know, I, I would say the the majority of, of cases don't even go reported, um, and, and that that could be anything from a a, a minor uh, a minor uh, diagnosis to to uh, severe PTSD. Um, and, and that's unfortunate, and that's something that, even though they, everyone's increased the awareness dramatically over the over the past few years, especially when uh, when uh, Admiral Olson and Admiral Morkaven uh, down at SOCOM uh, initiated their task force and their in their uh, white paper studies on PTSD and the troops. Um, you know, it, there's still a there's still a uh, stigma with that, and uh, you know, you hit the nail on the head, man. Twenty percent. No, it's 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 got to be way above that, man. Yeah, I think what I, I read was uh, Vietnam veterans were more like thirty percent, and then I read uh, recently from this Rand study that it was twenty uh, percent. But you know, we have a panel of individuals that we invited to the show, and Rudy and you and I actually were talking about this subject probably three and a half months ago, and yeah, pretty black dog, whatever you want to call it, man, black dog, mama's goat, PTSD. I mean. Got a lot of names. So we, you know, we were really hoping to try to get a good podcast together because we know that a lot of our brothers and sisters deal with this type of situation. But I think with this podcast team that we brought together, we'll have an opportunity to take it from many different angles. So it might be helpful for each of the the panel members to kind of tell us a little bit about who they are, a little bit about their background and stuff. I think that might be helpful. So I'll kind of go around the room and, and Mondo, we'll start with you. All right. Hey, my name is Mondo. I'm the social media coordinator for Despresso Liber. I did uh, six and a half years in the military, the Army, from 99 to 06. Deployed from 04 to 05 to Iraq. Hey, guys. Andrew Marr. I'm the current CEO and founder or co-founder of Warrior Angels Foundation. I was uh, Special Forces Green Beret for just under nine years. I was medically retired. Um, you know, like many people here, I was an elite performer. Uh, capable of making life and death decisions in combat to one day waking up for my last appointment, being on 13 different medications. I was an alcoholic, and my wife's only request to me of the day was to keep my drinking down in case she went into labor so she wouldn't have to take herself to the hospital. At that time, that was like a wake-up call to me, and the wake-up call was the current treatment mechanism is not working because it's based on psychotherapy and medication. And that did nothing to improve my quality of life. And now working with hundreds of veterans, I haven't found anybody that that's been the answer to. So excited to talk here about some real solutions. Glad you joined us. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So, Mark, if you could uh, do an introduction as well, that'd be great. 
Sure, Robert, I appreciate you allowing me to be a part of this. My name is Mark Pugh. I'm Senior Vice President of Priam. Uh, we're a medical management company within workers' compensation. I'm basically paid to uh, speak and write about the issue of overutilization of prescription drugs, um, which is prevalent in workers' compensation. Um, and we can talk about that if you want to. PTSD and TBI are typically not things that we deal with in workers' comp. I have not suffered from either of those. Um, I've not suffered from substance abuse either, but we see that a lot in workers' comp. And I've been dealing with this since 2003. Uh, recently expanded my focus on the use of uh, marijuana, medical marijuana, as it's called, um, as well as uh, the uh, uh, parallel uh, epidemic of heroin use that has come from the overuse of opioids. Uh, so I come from this, Not I'm not a clinician, but I do bring that medical perspective. Um, hopefully I will be of help to this panel. I think it'll be great. So I'll kind of throw the same question that I asked of Rudy to you guys, you know, that when you think about the percentages of the veterans that are out there and how we think it's kind of low, what is your take on it in your discussions and interactions with other veterans? Well, you know, in the... I got some statistics right here, Dylan. That I, we deal on this every day. So through the first quarter of 2000, uh, through the excuse me, the third quarter of 2015, there had been about 340,000 diagnosed TBIs, uh, and that's according to the Defense and Veterans Brain Injury Center, uh, the Department of Defense's. And one in three troops returning from the current uh, situations in Iraq and Afghanistan are severing um, have post-traumatic stress-like symptoms, and that's from the PTSD Foundation of America. Um, so, you know, those are somewhat accurate, but for operators uh, or people who are on the front lines, it's, it's higher, and here's why. They're exposed to certain environmental factors that put them at, at a greater risk, and because the information isn't clearly known across the force, there's more than that are not speaking about it that, that, that are. And so that's why it's important to have forums like this to get this information out. Andrew, that was one of the questions I was going to hit everybody up on, man, was, uh, you, I mean, you kicked it off right away with that. And that was uh, our, and I don't want to take it down the wrong road of, of special operations being any better or anything less than, than anyone else in the military by any means. But are special operators more susceptible to PTSD because of, because of the jobs we've, we've had and the missions we've been on? Yeah, I think that's exactly right, and it's it's no, you know, hey, this is better that than the other. It's just stating the facts, the op yeah. tempo, the what you have to do to prepare for those things, put you, expose you to external factors that are a direct result of what we're seeing today. Yeah, we're taught to, you know, we're taught to fight through injuries. We're taught to, you know, remain stoic about uh, about pain, uh, both physical and psychological. Uh, you know, we. The, the missions that we go on are pretty extreme. So I, I don't have a PhD. I don't have a, uh, a background in this. But uh, just from, from on-the-ground experience, I, I, I would venture to say that uh, most definitely they're more susceptible. Uh, because to me, PTSD, you know, it kind of a, it's, a, it's a strange thing in itself. And it, it, it comes out of nowhere, man. And it's, it could, I think every person's different, and it, it hits everyone differently. Um, I've, I've got so many friends of mine that are both uh, retired uh, and still active duty that are struggling with this. And it, it just drives me crazy, man. And, and, and you had mentioned the, the medications you were on. I think you got me by one med. Um, but, not, you know, not we to do that. <laughs> what's that? Yeah, that's no winning thing over here. Oh, I know, I know, I know. But, but why are doctors, and, and maybe Mark can answer this, why, why is the, the medical field 
the medical industry is so quick to throw these psychotropic, these extremely powerful psychotropic drugs uh, towards PTSD. I mean, it, all, it, it just numbs the problem. It just, I'll step in for Mark. Um, what, what we've seen with, with uh, our work at the foundation is that uh, it's the easiest thing to do, and that's why it's done. It's just put a cookie-cutter thing. Okay, you have symptoms, these symptoms. Here's packet number A of drugs. And three months later, when they're not working, we'll put you on packet B. Uh, yep. It's because they're not asking the right questions. So yep. if you're just saying, okay, you're depressed, here's an anti-depression pill. Six months later, if you're still depressed, maybe that's not the problem. So we yep. got to get to the underlying condition. Exactly. And when you're when you're speaking depression, depression and PTSD are two different things. You know, um, depression is a symptom of PTSD. However, it's you know they, they should be diagnosed separately and treated separately. I would think. Yeah, you you would think these these things. And again, I mean, you have to look again at what is what is post traumatic stress. What are things like traumatic brain injuries and physical injuries, and how do they play into each other? Both of them have o overarching spheres of influence um, that uh, cross over the symptoms. And so, a lot of time, what we found is people are sometimes wrongly misdiagnosed with post-traumatic stress when it's a physical injury. Yeah. And I say that because when you treat the person as a physical injury and you correct the underlying condition, guess what? The post-traumatic stress symptoms can go away. It affects everyone across the board. Um, nobody's any different. Female, lower enlisted, senior officer. It, it, it's something that needs to be addressed and it, uh, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily have the right answers. But one hey, thing I hey, can Rudy, do... Rudy, what's the stigma you think? Uh, we can just stick to operators, but, you know, yeah. there is a huge stigma there. What do you think it is, and why do you think it is? I, I think it's two things, brother. I think it's, I think it, first and foremost, it's us as individuals. It's, it's the type of people that we are. You know, we're hard chargers. We're, we're you know, uh, get the mission done, mission first, uh, mission above everything else. And uh, we don't want to be the, that weak uh, link or, or, or chink in the armor so to say you know so when we are experiencing an issue early on in the early stages you know we, we power through it and it progresses uh we move on and 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 it just lies in wait and things start stacking on top of each other and, and i can speak from my own experiences you know it, it mine started back in uh probably uh, 2002 2003 um and then and then really peaked out in around 2004 2005 as it as an individual, as a soldier, as a leader, I swept it under, man. I had to, I had to focus on my men. I had to focus on the mission, and and that that's what came first. My own, my own troubles, my own uh, problems that had begun to escalate very slowly, mind you, and, and it creeps up on you. Uh, I just swept them under the rug and, and drove through it, and you know it, it peaked out one day, and I'm one of the lucky ones. I'm fortunate. You know, I almost lost my family over it. Uh, almost lost myself over it. Not, I'm not ashamed to admit. You know, I had a gun to my head because I didn't have an answer. You know, I was sick and tired of you know being a failure as a as a father. I felt I was a failure as a leader. I took responsibility for a lot of things that uh, that happened on deployments that I wished wouldn't have happened, and it, and it just kind of all peaked. And, and when it peaks, man, it hits hard. And um, it's you could be the hardest dude on earth, and uh, it's going to hit you like a Mack truck. You know. I have, a, I have a question towards Rudy and Andrew, just from your, you know, talking about your experiences. If you can look at yourself now and the way that PTSD has evolved and the awareness has evolved and how some of your buddies coming off the team that are suffering from it, do you think now that this new generation of soft guys that are aware of it, I guess having the education that they can kind of counteract the symptoms when they start seeing them instead of, you know, 
putting them under the rug like we're so in tune to do you know we got to keep charging with the mission and you just kind of have to tuck these emotions aside because you're you know you have things that you need to do but yeah. now do you well, think I, no i was going to answer the question i you know i answered the first part and um you know uh, we, we said there's i said there's two things one was us as individuals the second is the leadership and i think to answer your question specifically cat time is going to tell um and i think we're still early on in the in the game if you will um as this thing develops and we understand it more um you know as a leader you have to be able to recognize these things early on and you cannot allow them to uh compound on each other you know and it and again mistakes that i made as a leader um with my team uh you know i'd see symptoms but i wouldn't recognize them as symptoms of ptsd or trauma or, or tbi I would, you know, I was of the mindset, suck it up, buttercup, we got a mission to do. Or judgmental. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. Uh Yeah, I dealt with that first No, we just didn't know these things. There was was no correlation between head trauma and all these behavioral issues and uh, head trauma and post-traumatic stress. It just didn't exist. Um, And so that's why when guys started experiencing them, they thought that they were, you know, it was just something special to their scenario. And what I think is important to know is say, hey, when and if these things happen, it's not special to you. So that's my hope for the new generation that one, we have mechanisms in place to identify it biologically uh, and with chemistry. Um, And two, that we know that, hey, okay, it's not a weakness. It's not a decision. These are things that happen because of X, Y, and Z. And then to have the leadership like you talked about Rudy to implement these plans and then to say okay well this dude has a silver star he's got 18 years of phenomenal service he just got a DUI instead of like hey let's send him out to, to, to burn let's ask the question well, what's going on why would he yeah. all of a sudden do something like that so as a leader we would need to look at the underlying condition what's causing him to all of a sudden act completely different than he ever has yeah. before there's a reason for that. Yep, and, and I was on that same path, man. And alcohol and drugs are typically, from what I've seen, are typically the first things uh, guys and gals turn to. I, I did myself, man. I was, I was pounding a fifth of Jack on the weekends, and it was every weekend, man. Right. And it, it, it was my escape, you know. I'd get home from combat, and, you know, I felt uh, I felt I had a good tour. You know, we got a lot of missions accomplished. I was, I was excited and happy about that. You know what the problem was? The problem was I didn't care about myself. I didn't care about my family. I didn't care about anything else other than that. And I would go hang out with my buddies, you know, and get get tore up, and we'd all contribute to each other's problems right. without identifying it for what it was. For me, it was like, okay, come back, and out of nowhere, boom, I start having anxiety and panic attacks in public. Yeah. And I was like, oh, what's going on? You know, who's why is this happening? You know started uh, having spouts where I would get emotional and just cry for no reason in public. <laughs> for no reason, right? Yeah. yeah. Yep. So th- things that are unbecoming of SF dude. Yep. And then yep. not getting, uh, having answers or any real outlet for that is very difficult. So when a guy has all these things going on and he thinks his world is imploding on him and there's no medical answers for him, it's, it's a slippery slope when you combine that with the medications alcohol, other drugs, and that's how uh, somebody who solved problems for a living turns and thinks the ultimate problem solved is to take their own life. 
So what do you guys think as far as the therapy? You know, each of you had to go through therapy and, and meet with counselors and stuff. Do you think, how much of that really helped? How much of that really helped you get through that next stage? Did you feel like you came away with a lot of the answers to the questions that you had? I personally did not. I mean, it did help. It helped me tremendously in identifying, because I'm a why, I've always been a why guy, and I'll ask why to anything I don't understand. And, and I, I, I try to pursue the answers and, and figure it out on my own. And to me, when, when this thing peaked out for me, real quick, Robert, and I'll get right back to it, you know, my, my peaking moment was four years ago, maybe. Um, you know, I, I was typical going, to, you know, bad dreams, nightmares, and all that. Um, I woke up on top of my uh, three-year-old at the time because uh, he, he, he was sleeping in bed with uh, my wife and I. And I scared the living hell out of my wife and obviously my son. I was doing a finger sweep, and anybody in the military knows what that is when you're checking for damage or bullet wounds, uh, exit wounds, uh, down the back of somebody's uh, head and neck and back area. And I was doing that to my three-year-old son in the bed. And it was because he had, uh, well, it was because of my PTSD I was having, but he had colored himself with red permanent marker. You know, kids get into, into crayons and markers and stuff when he went to bed, and that, for whatever reason, that that triggered a, an event for me. And I didn't realize it was happening until my wife was screaming at me crying, you know? And it, at that point, that was the, that was the, the peak of, of when I made the decision. And this is important. I made the personal decision to figure out what was going on. You know, I didn't, I, I didn't want to lose uh, my family. Um, I didn't want to lose my job. I didn't want to lose myself. Um, and, and I, I, I set it was a new mission for me, you know. So I actually checked myself in uh, to go get counseling. Now, to answer your question specifically, the uh, the counseling did not help me in the sense that, you know, I, I went to counseling and felt better after counseling. Uh, it helped me to determine, okay, that did not work. What else do I need to do? Right. What else do I need to find or, or discover through someone else or myself or whatever the case is to, to help get ahead of this thing before it gets bad and I went through I went through many different counselors and uh, you know I was very open-minded to it uh, I just I couldn't relate to the uh, psychologists uh, or the or the uh, the psychologists or the uh, psychiatrist both uh, psychiatrists want to push meds on me constantly uh, without telling me the, the side effects of the meds and, and how to come off of them effectively which I learned the hard way as well but the the counselors themselves very nice people, very well intentioned. Their heart was in the right place. It's just I couldn't relate to them. You know, you, I, I pick my I pick my best friend's face up like a rubber Halloween mask off the road because he got blown up with an IED. And how do you share a story like that with someone who's who's never they they can't understand that? You know, you can't. You um, can't. And, and and that's the problem. You hit the nail on the head. It's relate. You know, uh, you're yeah. talking to somebody who doesn't know the difference between you know a barrel and a buttstock. Um, and so there there's no common ground there. And uh, so you need some somebody that you trust uh, to open those those things up. And uh, my I'm very similar to Rudy, and I, I didn't find well third person objective viewpoints are very good and much needed. But other than that, you know, I didn't need anybody telling me anything else. I, I knew what was wrong. It was all these symptoms, and I wanted to fix them. Uh, and talking about my feelings didn't help. The situation. That's one thing that with myself, so just a little backstory. When I deployed, I deployed in 2007 and 
wasn't in direct combat like y'all were, you know, facing that every single day, but I became a victim of, well, I was, I don't want to call myself a victim because since I'm still alive, then I no longer define myself as that, what happened. But I was raped twice um, by another service member over there. And just like Andrew, you had said, as at the end of my tour is when my symptoms really started to fall, I guess, in the, the forefront. And isolating myself became very, I guess you could say, withdrawn and short with people, angry. And my leadership, which now I preach to people all the time, but my leadership used that as a way to fault me. So, and, and, and kind of use that against me, which I, I feel that a lot of NCOs then who look at, because I was a private then, looked at you like you're just trying to, you're becoming complacent, you're just trying to like sandbag your way through the rest of the tour. So a big part of my unit was extremely corrupt, a lot of fraternization, a lot of nasty things were going on within the unit, which we see in the military a lot. And when I finally had my breaking point, and also like Rudy, I checked myself in to therapy, went through the whole process of them trying to figure it out because just recently they have related PTSD due to MST which this just came out probably I would say a year ago and they didn't know what to do with me back in 2007. Cat, Cat what's MST for, for the listeners? Oh MST is military sexual trauma Okay. and I still struggle to this day trying to find because like you you guys have, have said it's the best therapy it's being able to talk to somebody that can relate to you where I can talk to y'all and because I relate we have the same symptoms where we, you know, the anxiety, the anger, the withdrawing from our peers, the depression, pot, like, you know, you're starting at that top tier and then all of a sudden you're, I like to, my favorite phrase is, I would have temper tantrums like a toddler and I, I don't know how to control myself. Yeah. Yeah. But I had a therapist who told me. Called um, rage. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that's, and that's the thing. It's like you are expressing yourself. Yeah. like a child who isn't getting their way and that's a that's what I how I like to look at it. it's like there's this little guy in my brain that's just like ramming on it trying to get out and I you know I have no control over it but so I was having all of these issues and I finally was able to talk to a therapist and going back to how corrupt my unit was and I was sharing these things with him and he said I think you're just a little uptight and you should have just gone with the flow so I I went through for six years doubting myself thinking that I had, you know, that I confined, confide in this person as a friend who took advantage of the situation. And I, I just, like, had this over-the-top, just out-of-control symptoms. And finally, the, the thing that hit it was I was actually in BNOC when it was BNOC. And we had the sexual assault videos that were going on. And there, a scenario came on that was identical to mine. And, you know, all my peers, E6, E7s, were joking about it. And I kind of just had, like, it was like an aha moment. I had a meltdown. And I remember I came back in and I said, this is serious. You see that how like, don't look at younger soldiers and their symptoms as a way of them getting out of things. Because like you say, Andrew, like you need to actually sit them aside and be like, hey, what's going on? Why are you feeling this way? What can we do to get you back on track? Because then that's when it leads to drug abuse, alcohol abuse, suicide, which, you know, like Rudy, you said you had a gun to your head. Like I have contemplated, had plans of suicide and it took talking to peers instead of counselors who don't get it to get me through it. So um, as a MST, I, I think going back to the whole therapy and what have you, it, they're kind of gearing it the same, but it's still trying to just put a Band-Aid on things. They, my symptoms, they're trying to diagnose it the same as somebody who is dealing with it from, like you said, Rudy, you know, picking your buddy's face off off the road, you know, and it's, it's 
symptoms are the same, but scenarios are different. Did you find that uh, the combat situation that you experienced with the 75th, did you suffer any PTSD from working with them as a CSD? See, and what's, what's interesting about that is I was actually, I was going through a PTSD evaluation with a therapist. My nightmares, and like I had a scenario like yours, Rudy, where I was actually in bed sleeping and my, my uh, one-year-old at the time, or no, she actually had just turned, she was two. I had gotten up. I felt like someone was coming in the house to get me because my I was extremely paranoid. My anxiety was through the roof, and I woke up in the middle of the night and I had grabbed her. And I was this is all sleepwalking. Grabbed her, ran her to the back side of the house, and I'm trying to get out of the house. And she she was screaming, and I'm trying to. And I woke up and I was like, Oh my god, like what is going on? Like nobody's trying to get in the house. And I'm I'm having you know the nightmares like y'all had, but I had told the therapist. Hey, you know, I accept, I accept, you know, that people were killed and that I saw dead bodies and I, I lost my one, you know, my CST sister over there. But the problem is, is that I'm not having the symptoms do solely related to combat. What is my issue is, is I'm having symptoms related to what had happened to me and I'm completely aware of what happened to me and I accept it. But I need you to help me manage the new person that I am, which is unacceptable in society. But even to this day, since they do not know how to rope in MST to PTSD, if you say that you are in combat, they will just throw that right at you. Like, they, you, that person was in combat, that is the reason that they have PTSD, which is not for me. The reason I yeah. have PTSD is because I was forcefully raped. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's still a work so, in progress. So, Mike, from a, from a leadership perspective, I mean, you were a CSM, man. You did 30 years, brother. Um, we're, we're from the same era. We've cut some of the same dirt together. From a leadership perspective, man, a senior leadership perspective, what, what direction do you think we're going, man? you think it's the right one? Do you feel it's going good for us or what? And I, I, I sit here and I'm listening to the stories, Rudy, and from my own experience, I've, I mean, I've seen everything happen. You know, yeah. I, I've seen a guy pop on a DUI, and, and, and we all ask the question, right, what, what's yeah. going on with his life? But everybody's hands are tied when it comes to drugs and alcohol in the Army. It's an Army problem. That, that really needs to be readdressed so that we can we can dig a little bit deeper. But but I, I don't know. I, I think you know and to circle back, something Kat said is is uh has been kind of playing with me the whole time I've been listening. And that's you know what what do the guys on the team do with it? What I mean when they think something's going on, what do they do with it? And my yeah. my answer is, you know, none of us want to be broke, man. Yeah and, yeah. and that's you know, but that's that's uh that, that's it, man. I, I mean, I, I remember I had a shoulder injury and a knee injury, and I didn't want to be broke because I didn't want to be the guy yeah. on the team that couldn't hang. Yeah. And yeah. so when this is going on in a guy's head, you know, he doesn't want to be broke, and he doesn't know how to deal with it. He doesn't know how to fix it. And you know, as guys, we like to fix things. So I, I don't know. It's the hardest thing to get guys to overcome, and, and we've been doing it. We've been talking about the stigma for the last, what, five, six, seven years. Yeah, yeah. And, say decades, and we, still can't, yeah. we still can't get young, type A guys to, to, to come forward and ask and ask for help. And part of the problem, I think, is because what you guys are saying, man, the help ain't working. The, we all have psychologists and psychiatrists attached to the groups. And what do they do? They medicate. They medicate symptoms the same way we treat symptoms with, with anything else. And, and as all you were saying, it's not helping. So until we can get those peer-to-peer groups together and the word out to the, to the guys at the lowest level, I, I think I, mean, I don't see any, any light on the horizon. I, I mean... Andrew, I, I'm anxious to hear what your experience is. You're the one, I, I think, on the panel that is, uh, ha, has had his, you know, his hands in it the most with the uh, actual troops. Yeah, you know, you're, you're right. It, it's one of those things that's 
there was no correlation and it, it just wasn't spoken about. And here's what we need. We need the flip side of that. We need type A personalities, former operators, uh, past and present, to speak up and talk about their circumstance and their experience to the younger generation to let them know, hey, I've been to combat more times than I can even count. And we've seen and done and got the t-shirt. So I have the credibility. I have the street cred. This can happen. And it's real. And it can affect your team. It can affect you. So we have to identify, that has to be identified. And then two, it, it, the onus goes back on the person. So if you are a member of a team, you are a leader, you have people you're responsible for, you need to realize at that point, hey, what point am I a liability to this team? And that was yeah. why it was easy for me to speak out because, uh, you know, I sat on the problems for as long as I could sit on them until I couldn't sit on them anymore. And then it was apparent that, my God, I'm a liability and I swore to myself that I would never do anything in my power to put any of my team in harm's way. And now, de facto, because I'm having these issues, I will put them in harm's way. So you know, it's Andrew, for me to raise my that, man. And say that, you know? That liability issue, too, I reflect back on, on, on some pretty stupid things that I did, um, and I can attribute them now. I couldn't then. Uh, hindsight's always twenty twenty, but, uh, you know, speaking directly to being a liability, man, I would charge head on into some really pinky situations. But again, it wasn't, it wasn't known. We didn't, we did, you didn't know anything other, other to do. You know what I mean? It wasn't even known that this could happen. So yeah, yeah, put it, put a, whatever on it. Let's keep moving. So I got a, I'm sorry, Kat. I got a question for uh, Mark real quick. Um, so, you know, and, and I may be totally off on this brother, but, uh, from what I've seen, both civilian and military doctors, the, the majority of my experience has been with the military doctors, both the uh, psychologists and psychiatrists and uh, civilian uh, psychiatrists. I get the impression, I get the feeling that their heart's in the right place. They don't fully understand uh, PTSD and how to treat it, and they're very quick to want to medicate. And I, I kind of get the impression that it's a CYA type thing that says, hey, you know, we don't know what else to do, so we're going to medicate. Is it? Or is it a numbers thing? Or is it a numbers game? Just you know, to I don't see know. how successful, how many successful vets are getting through their doors. Like, hey, this this vet's medicated. You know, that's a check for us. Or this vet's going through this treatment. That's a check for us. Just to add numbers to their their statistics, or the amount of vets that are coming through. Like, hey, I got to throw a bandaid on this because we have vets lined up months out because they don't have yeah. the proper resources. So I, that's what I'm curious about. Is that do they over medicate because? They're on a time crunch, and they have you know Big Brother looking at them like, "Hey, we got to get these guys in and out of the door." Yeah, we got to do something, you know. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, overprescribing, regardless of the specialty, is a huge issue. Um, over two million Americans abuse painkillers. Uh, about a half a million um, abuse heroin. Uh, Nineteen thousand people uh, died from painkillers in 2014. Ten thousand five hundred died from heroin. In 2014, there is a direct correlation between heroin use and opioids. A lot of people who get into abuse of heroin started with opioids. The prevalence and the overprescribing of opioids began in the mid-1990s when Big Pharma convinced doctors in medical school that specifically OxyContin was not uh, addictive and told them wow. there was less than a 1% chance of addiction, um, which came about the same time as pain was added as the fifth vital sign. So pain is, it was treated as objectively, as truly objective information, like 
uh, temperature and, and pulse rate. And then you had this stigma of opioid phobia, where they said that we had been under-treating pain. So this whole maelstrom started in the mid-1990s, and the pendulum swung to over-prescribing. At the same point in time, we've uh, reduced reimbursement for doctors. And to your point, um, as far as getting the widgets in and out of their office, you know, we don't pay them for long extended visits with patients to truly dig into what may be happening in their head, what may be happening at home. And, uh, you know, 10, 15 minutes, they got to get them in and out. You know, by the way, we've run out of, we don't have enough doctors to go around. So nurse practitioners and physician assistants are primarily the ones that are dealing with this. And they don't understand pain. They haven't been trained on pain. They don't understand PTSD. They don't understand TBI. They don't understand a lot of this stuff. So the answer to your question in a very long-winded way is, yes, they overprescribe. They do it because it's the easiest way to get that patient in and out. It may not be the most efficacious treatment, but it is the most efficient treatment. So it depends on how you measure success. Uh, one of the things that's coming from the Affordable Care Act is the focus on outcomes-based as opposed to fee-based service. In theory, what will happen is that physicians will uh, be focused on creating the best treatment plan that creates the best overall treatment, whether it's cognitive behavioral therapy, motivational interviewing, you know, a variety of different things where it's pharmacological. But by the same token, um, their, their compensation is going to be based on outcomes. So what I see is a lot of cases when they have difficult patients, physicians will find a way to get them out of their office and out of their practice because they'll skew their numbers. So you get what you get what you incent. If you're incentivized or motivated to checkbox and get see X number of patients on a daily basis, that's what you're going to get. Um, so it is very easy to overprescribe, and we've got this just horrible issue in our in the United States specifically on the overuse of these drugs. I don't know if that answers your question, but um, no, no, it, it's it, a significant it problem. No, it's it, it is. That one thing that kind of this triggered my thought was, so Mike had said that, you know, a lot of these guys too, you know, they have all of these injuries, like say their back, their shoulders. I mean, you know, you guys jump in hauling a ton of weight all the time. Yeah, it screws with your spine. Anyway, a lot of the, they mask those issues. And along with masking those issues is the thought that you may fail, which leads to depression, which, you know, originally, like uh, Andrea said, if you get to the original problem, and you fix it, then your PTSD will go down. So now that you know the VA is looking at any sort of symptoms of depression, anxiety, what have you, they're labeling it as PTSD. So for instance, if you have a guy that goes into the VA, he has a back issue, but he's not going to say anything about it. And he's like, well, I feel like this, I feel like this. So the, the doctor prescribes him an antidepressant. Then he has to come back a month later. He's like, well, now that the antidepressant is doing this, um, I'm anxious. So he prescribes him an anti-anxiety. Then he prescribes them mood stabilizer then he ups all of those or all of those medications because they're not working effectively when all in all the soldier needs to take accountability of hey it's my back that originally hurts so and then they don't want to completely take them off of that medication and then that's when they start prescribing them painkillers and oxycontin and all of those other things now you have a soldier like rudy or or andrew who are prescribed 14 different medications so that they counteract one another and then you have just a big mix of chemicals in your body, which is, you know, leads you to liver well, failure. Extremely <laughs> powerful, me, extremely yeah. powerful chemicals. Because uh, I, I just texted my wife downstairs. I said, "Hey, what's the name of that that drug I was on that gave me the zaps?" 
what what had happened was that you know they I went through this uh, this series about every three months, and uh, we gave it a you know I gave it a good old college try, try the med out, and the doc said, ah, if it doesn't work, uh, we'll try something else. Okay, no problem. How do we do that? Uh, well, just come in and we'll stop taking that one, and I'll prescribe you this one. Okay, that's that's pretty uh, knuckle dragger proof right there. So I went ahead and went on with it. Well, what he failed to tell me was the side effects of coming off of this drug, cold turkey. You can't do that. You know, I, I, I remember the day I the day I stopped taking it, within 24 hours, I started getting these, these, these electrical zaps that would go from my head to my toes in like blink of an eye. And it, it was happening like every 30 seconds to a minute. And it was driving me crazy. And I couldn't figure out what it was. Long story short, it was directly related to coming off of that med cold turkey. You know, I did my own research. My wife started digging into it for me. And uh, she's like, oh, my God, Rudy, you can't, you can't just stop taking that stuff. you got to wean yourself off of it. And uh, I'm like, well, that's not what the doc said. He just said, stop it, and I'll go get it, try something else because this obviously isn't working. And, uh, man, it got bad. And uh, that's just one example. You know, I went through a lot of different meds that way. Yeah, and somebody said, you know, how do you define success with the treatment plan? Easy. Does it improve or does it not improve their quality of life? Yeah. That did not improve your quality of life. No, absolutely not. <laughs> The, the, the clinical evidence is, is pretty clear um, from what I understand in treatment of PTSD specifically is the SSRIs are the appropriate antidepressants, Prozac, Zoloft, Paxil, Lexapro, those kind of drugs. Now, they do have side effects and they do have withdrawal process. So your doctor probably yeah, well, obviously did. Paxil was yeah, obviously yeah. the doctor didn't understand the withdrawal process. <clears throat> Um, and the side effects. And we see that a lot in chronic pain. And, and a lot of you are dealing not only with this, the psychological part, the PTSD, but also the physical part of the injuries that's happened to your body. And there's chronic pain associated with that. And that's what we, we see, unfortunately, a lot of chronic pain in workers' compensation. And we see this cocktail evolve over time. And probably um, in, in, in retrospect, that's what happened. What we see oftentimes is there's, there's an acute um, injury and rather than prescribing ibuprofen or um, acetaminophen or an NSAID for that acute or the subacute musculoskeletal um, injury, they start with an opioid. And that opioid, whether it's the first pill or the 20th pill, at some point you're not going to be able to poop. And so now you got to add a stool softener. And then you have opioid-induced hyperalgesia where it actually increases your sensitivity to pain and you get sleep disorder. So rather than dealing with the root cause of why you can't go to sleep, they prescribe an Ambien for you to help settle you down. And then you can't wake up the next morning because they really settled you down quite well. And so you now get, got to get the Provigil or Nuvigil, the anti-narcoleptic drug, to try to wake you up. And then you're you more are, anxious. You are hitting some heartstrings there, man. You're bringing back some memories. <laughs> oh. And then the anti-anxiety drugs, like the benzos. I'm, I, I'm, I am, I'm not a fan of opioids by any stretch. They're, they're meant for before, during, immediately after surgery, AIDS, cancer, cancer treatment, and end of life. Help people typically to die with dignity. That's what most of these opioids were created for. But uh, another dangerous drug classification is benzos. And I know Xanax and those types of drugs oftentimes are, tr are used for treatment. Um, and those are very dangerous. Um, I've studied tapering a lot on all these different drug classifications. And it can take up to 18 months to wean someone off of a benzo off of wow. a Xanax or a Valium type of a drug, and you mix it with alcohol, which a lot of folks unfortunately do, that increases or accentuates the uh, debilitating side effects. 
And so you get like a Heath Ledger, the Joker and Batman that took Xanax alcohol and basically went to sleep and didn't wake up the next morning because it suppresses the autonomic respiratory. It, you don't you, you forget to breathe. Your brain doesn't automatically breathe. And so you don't wake up. So these very dangerous drug regimens, not only over time, um, kind of they're an evil that kind of creep in based on side effects and symptoms and dealing with the symptomatology you prescribe more drugs or more quantity of drugs or higher dosage of drugs and then you look back and go okay you're on a cocktail of six or eight or ten drugs and different drug classifications how do you stop that well it's got to be very methodical it's got to be very well thought out it may need to be medication-assisted treatment, which what is something that President Obama's been talking about, the Surgeon General's talking about, the introduction of Suboxone, introduction, uh, introduction of Vivitrol or Methadone to help wean off of that. It's a very complex process. So the fact that your doctor said, just stop it, we'll start something else, means that he or she really, truly didn't understand the drugs that they were giving you and the repercussions of those drugs that they were giving you. Geez, that's scary in itself. I mean, yeah, I mean, you think about most people are very trusting of physicians that they're going to be able to heal them. They're going to be able to fix or correct what's wrong or ailing them. When in many cases, it's just that they're trying to fix the underlying symptoms that you presented to them. And that's all they they hear. They, They hear, okay, well, I'm having this problem. They try to get to somewhat of a root cause, but then they attack that symptom. And they do that over and over again. I'm just curious, you know, you talked a lot, Mark, about medical marijuana. And I know that that has been used a lot within the PTSD space as well. So what what are your thoughts about the use of medical marijuana from your perspective, Mark? And then I'm curious to get the panel's perspective of what they've seen in the their fellow veterans. Well, from a clinical standpoint, marijuana is not medicine when you compare it to how the FDA quantifies and uses criteria to quantify medicine. But And I've spoken on this subject about 60 times all around the country. I've written several um, articles about it. One, most recently, is marijuana the solution to our opioid issue, which is an argument that I hear a lot. But I've talked with enough people that were going through cancer treatment, and the typical drugs did not satiate the pain and the side effects from it, and the marijuana was the only thing that took care of that. I've seen stories of uh, uh, kids, especially, who are having seizures, um, that the CBD oil component of it, which doesn't have any psychoactive, it doesn't get you high, that CBD oil has helped them suppress the number of uh, seizures that's happened. I've seen people wean themselves off of opioids and benzos and other drugs and supplanted those drugs with marijuana. I would not make the argument to those individual people that that was not an appropriate solution. Um, We've got 24 states that have legalized medical marijuana at this juncture. Um, We've got uh, another 15 states in very restricted access that provide um, medical marijuana, typically the CBD and the low THC. We've got four states who've legalized recreational marijuana, including D.C., and there's about six states that are going to vote on that ballot initiatives. We got all sorts of weird conflicting messages from the state of Colorado. You've got some people that are really happy about the tax revenue 
and the fact from a libertarian standpoint, let it, it's hypocritical to talk about marijuana not the same way as alcohol. Alcohol is completely legal and can be self-medicating. Why isn't marijuana? I understand that. But I also understand that 49% of adolescents that were admitted to substance abuse in Colorado secured, uh, it was based on marijuana, and they secured that marijuana from legitimate registered patients in the medical cannabis program. So most of the medical cannabis programs around the country are focused on a series of conditions, typically 5 to 15, that often include PTSD and include Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and seizures and chronic pain and so forth. But just because you have walls around those those conditions doesn't mean that that medical marijuana gets in the hands of people who weren't intended, and especially adolescents when their brain is still forming and figuring out what it wants to be to grow up that can get in the hands and, and create some significant problems. So medical marijuana, there's a perception that it is medical, and it depends on who you're talking to. The DEA apparently is going to make a decision by July as to whether to reschedule it. Currently, it's illegal at the federal level, legal at various state levels. If the DEA decides to reschedule it, and the science is kind of murky, the science either proves or disproves your point depending upon the bias that you come into it, it changes the dialogue. So is marijuana a solution for PTSD? It does solve some anxiety issues, but it also increases potentially anxiety. It increases the possibility of psychosis and responses. So that is a, it, is, it is a dangerous drug. People don't think, the advocates for marijuana think, say that it's benign, that nobody's ever died from it, that nobody ever gets addicted to it. I would beg to differ on that. But I have seen and talked to a variety of people who've used marijuana that it works for them, and I would not argue that it's not the proper solution for them. My uh, six-year-old's autistic, and um, we tried everything with him to try to help him. I can speak directly to the CBD oil. Um, you know, there's like point, there's a thousandth of a percent of THC uh, in it. So for all those listeners who think, oh my God, he's giving drugs to his kid, I'm not. Um, and that, that, I've seen dramatic, dramatic improvements with, with his demeanor, uh, behavior, everything. And I'm I think, in favor of it. Yeah, I think too that if you're, you have to treat it like as if it were any other drug you're going to administer to a vet. Like, and if it doesn't work, sure. don't use it. You know, and that's, yeah. I know, I guess more studies, you can look at the uh, addictiveness of it or the bad side effects or, you know, whatnot. But I mean, if it works, like you said, it works for your son. Some vets, they, they swear by it. It's, I don't see why they, why you can't give it a try. So, I mean, um, the guy on uh, opiates and narcotics, but for some reason, if he's trying to ease his pain or inflammation with marijuana, that's frowned upon. Well, that's because they haven't monetized it yet. That's the truth. That's for a different podcast probably altogether. But, you know, as soon as the government can figure out a way to monetize it, they'll legalize it. Hey, Mark. State governments have done that, and that, that's what's growing the momentum for that. And that's unfortunate, you know. I wish more study would go into it and, and, and people would call it like they see it, you know. I'm not an expert on it, but I support it 100% because I've seen it work. I've seen it work with good friends of mine. And just like you described, Mark, they've, they've come off of very powerful psychotropic drugs for depression, anxiety, PTSD, etc. And, uh, and they've, they've completely weaned off of all those other medicines and other drugs. And, you know, they're, they're, they, they've had a, an improvement in their life overall. So, you know. Yeah, the, the American Association of Addiction Medicine made an interesting quote. They said, for every condition that marijuana can be used for, there is an FDA-approved drug that can uh, resolve that condition. 
So pretty much there's consensus around the fact that you should try an FDA-approved well, yeah, medication. Yeah, is going to get paid for it. <laughs> right. Uh, well, as that as that first line therapy. So the FDA has yeah. gone through the rigor. They've studied it. They've presented the science and the studies around it, um, and they've approved it for those particular conditions. If those don't solve your issue, then marijuana is uh, in the states where it's legal is a legitimate secondary or, or tertiary treatment option. But it shouldn't be the first one you gravitate to because you're never really quite sure what you're going to get. Most yeah. dispensaries in most states don't have a lot of controls or regulation around them, so you're not really sure what you're buying. Mark, I'm, cu- I'm curious about your studies with TBI and how that relates to PTSD, because just some of the information that you, I guess, gathered with vets coming back and what that entails. Traumatic brain injury, you know, it, it, I mean, we're seeing that in the NFL. You know, I forget exactly the acronym that's associated with that, but it's essentially a TBI and concussive effects and so forth. And there's just, you know, there's different things associated with that. There's different treatments associated with that. We don't typically see in workers' comp PTSD and TBI very often, although uh, public safety officers like policemen and firemen, you know, if, if they saw something bad or were in the line of fire, there is PTSD associated with that. The NFL is a workplace. The NFL players are employees. The NFL is an employer. Um, so the concept of CTE and the, and the TBI is a big issue for them. And we don't understand as much about the brain as we need to at this point. We're getting better at it. But I think, you know, the evidence I've seen is those SSRIs, the Prozac, Zoloft, Lexapro, you know, for those types of things, the, the way it interacts with the chemicals in the brain, that should be your first-line therapy. So is it is it the I completely disagree. I completely disagree. I think that's subjective and what we need is an objective test, something like uh, a blood test. Uh, so let's see where somebody's neurochemistry is at. Let's see if they're deficient in any of thing that's required to, you know, run their neurochemistry and if they are, let's address that first before we start pumping SSRIs. Oh, yeah, let me let me rephrase that. I'm not saying just just randomly and, and aggressively prescribed drugs. The evidence is clear that a non-pharmacological approach should be tried first from a PTSD standpoint. Yeah. So, you know, the cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, is a big component of that. I, I am not, I think drugs should be a, a last resort. I think you should try a conservative, non-pharmacological treatment, regardless of the, of the pain, whether it's physical or psychological, you should always try conservative, non-pharmacological treatment. So I'm sorry if that came across wrong. I, I'm, I'm not advocating SSRIs for everybody. That's not what I was saying. Of the drug classifications, those are the most appropriate. But you need to take a step back and try it without drugs first. I mean, are there tests or brain scans or anything that you can actually look at hard copies that they're deficient in dopamine or sertraline or yeah, not sertraline, but serotonin? I was going to say, Andrew, this is might be a great time for you to talk about the Warrior Angels Foundation, especially what you and Dr. Gordon have been doing. You could probably expand upon this conver- this piece of the conversation. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, let's break down and dissect a traumatic brain injury. What is that? You know, there there's um, some mechanisms that we can look for to detect that, and that's any period of a complete loss of or decreased consciousness, all right? Any loss of memory related to the event occurring immediately before or after the injury. Neurological deficits such as muscle weakness, loss of balance and coordination, disruption of vision, change in speech and language, or sensory loss. 
and then any alteration in your mental state at the time of the injury, such as confusion, disorientation, slow thinking, or difficulty with concentration. Hey, Rudy, have you ever experienced any of that before? You, after you, <laughs> before? I was gonna ask you, man. So that one firefight I was in, I think I set the record for a number of Carl Gustav rounds fired back to back. I fired twenty-five of them. Yeah, <laughs> that would be the record, bro. I ain't heard any more than that. <laughs> <laughs> I, had, I had I had some significant issues within twenty-four so, hours. After that. So listen, here's here's what here's what the science has shown. Those things are a tra- traumatic brain injury by definition. Post-traumatic stress is purely a behavioral issue. So if there's trauma in your timeline, we need to look at that trauma. Yeah. What we found, uh, 1,200 clinical applications in civilian TBIs and now 100 through the foundation, is if we can do an objective test and look and see if somebody's deficient in these hormones that are produced in the brain called neurosteroids, and we can correct physiological levels, the insufficiency or deficiency, People get better. What and about shock? What about people who go into shock? Like, um, from like loss of blood or be more no, specific? No, I guess as a uh, fight or flight instinct. So what we're saying is is because you're deficient, right, in these steroids that make us who, are, who we are, responsible for cognition, responsible for executive decision making, it's expo- uh, responsible for behavior, responsible for short-term memory, et cetera, et cetera. When, when we have uh, inflammation in the brain, that's, there's two parts to, to TBI. There's the blunt force trauma, and the second part is the post-traumatic inflammation. And then when you have that post-traumatic inflammation, which is a fancy word for swelling, it's going to cut off and stop the ability of those hormones to pre- be produced. So now you're going to perceive things as they not, they not really are. What do you mean by that? I mean, I, now at this point, I can't go into a restaurant and sit with my back to the door <laughs> because I think somebody is out to get me. Okay, I am a light sleeper, and anything I hear, I jump up and I grab my piece because I'm ready for action. Those are not appropriate responses. And what I was told was like, hey, you're just stuck in the uh, sympathetic system of your fight and flight mode, and you just can't go back to your parents' sympathetic. Well, what they told me was hypervigilance. Right, but yeah, the reason exactly. for that hypervigilance is because my neurochemistry was incorrect. And now we've shown with 1,300 cases, specifically, when you treat somebody and you fix their deficiency, they get better. They can, they can now react to situations appropriately. They now realize that there's no reason to sit with their back uh, to the door if it's not a situation they could get compromised in. And so th- that's the work that we're doing with the foundation, you know, and, and we're looking to treat the underlying condition. There's about nine different ways you can screen for a traumatic brain injury that's approved by the DOD and, and other mechanisms. And not one uses something objective like a blood test. So we're saying, hey, let's go back. Let's make this super simple. Let's make it cost effective. Let's start testing and seeing if these, these markers are showing up. And if they are, we can interdict and stop the cascade of medications, stop the cascade of injuries, stop the suicide, stop the second and third order effects that affect families, marriages, children, work on down the line, and let's strengthen the force and let's get back to where we're at. And and the only reason I, the only reason I asked that, because when I was going through my therapy, first they prescribed a bunch of medication and then they wanted me to go through exposure therapy and I had the hardest time because you know, with exposure therapy, they well, what they do is they, they want you to play back the entire scenario from start to finish with every detail that you can imagine, and you record it, and then you just, they want you to listen to it over and over and over again until you become immune to it. 
which does not work for a lot of us, and I've heard some horror stories about it. But for me, during my situation, I went into what was really my therapist, or what he likes to say it is, when people do go into shock into some certain situations, they're protecting themselves, where for me, I felt like I put myself in a situation where I became a victim, which was extremely difficult. But I'm curious because a lot of rape victims, including myself, we have a lot of trouble remembering the event of when it was actually taking place or, and, and no due to like drugs or alcohol or anything like that. So I'm just curious if when you are in a fight or flight scenario such as myself and I went internal and I have a hard time remembering certain events that had gone into it and then coming back, like I fell asleep coming back to it. I'm wondering if that has the same effect as somebody in combat. I think so, but there's, you know, there's some questions there that, that need to be answered that are difficult. Like, okay, why, why don't you remember? Was there trauma that happened before, during, that, that could lit, led to that, you know, alteration uh, in brain function to, to make it where you couldn't remember? You know, I, I don't know. Or was it just the body shutting down and right. going into those stress mechanisms? Like a psychological, I mean, even with combat, and I, I talked it, to some it, other buddies it, too saying that they, they remember like being in there and it happening but they, they can't recollect it afterwards. Andrew, that's a good tie-in, man, for uh, yourself and Dr. Gordon are doing to treat some of this stuff. Uh, yeah, and, and that's that's what we're saying. And the point I was getting at, Kat, is, you know, what we would do, let's say, okay, well, let's take an objective blood test. Let's do a detailed health questionnaire and find out what's going on in your timeline. And so we have a complete understanding of you. And then let's take something objective like a blood test that tests to see if these chemicals or at the levels they need to be in your brain to allow you to function the way you need to function. And if we find start finding inconsistencies or deficiencies in those these chemicals that are produced in the brain, we can now start patching things up and saying, okay, she's having these symptoms. We know that she's deficient uh, in testosterone or human growth hormone or the precursors to those things. And we know that these directly affect this kind of behavior. And so, we can, we can make the correlations. And then again, if we treat you and we give you, we put back what you're deficient in, what you're insufficient in, and people get better, then we know that we've hit the underlying condition. And again, we've done that over 100 times now through the foundation. This is insane to me. Like, why is this not happening through the VA? Like, it's just, it, it like, make, I would want to picket the VA. Like, you, you, they have the test. Like, I would understand if they didn't have the test. But this is just absolutely insane to me. Like, people are dying from drug overdose. Yeah, so that's where we're working hard, too. By January 1st, 2020, these will be implemented within the DOD and the VA. At least that's, that's our goal. That's incredible. Uh, I, I'm extremely thankful for what you guys are doing. Yeah, the reason it will take over is because it's treating the underlying condition, but that's not what sells Congress. Uh, let me tell you what sells Congress. Dollars and cents. Yep. So it costs $16,000 for the VA, roughly, according to the Congressional Budget Office's 2012 report, to treat TBI and post-traumatic stress. And that treatment is medication and psychotherapy. For $5,000 uh, for your first year, we can do four different lab tests, so one initial, three follow-ups, all your protocols, and give you direct contact with the premier neuroendocrinologist in the world, Dr. Mark Gordon, and treat you. And again, we can do it for $5,000. So not only does it treat the underlying condition, it does it in a fraction of the time for a fraction of the price. That's why it will be implemented. 
That's awesome, dude. I, yeah, I commend you for that for that effort, Andrew. Um, that's hey, I'd, I'd like to switch gears for a second, guys. And uh, before we run out of time, I, I'd, I'd like to I'd like to address some some misconceptions, Mondo. Uh, what's your, what's some of your thoughts on you know the stereotypical diagnosis of PTSD and and what what people shouldn't be afraid of? I was the same as most. You know, when it all started out, before I was diagnosed, you know, or when I was diagnosed, you know, yep. it was the stigma of it all. I didn't want to accept it. I didn't want to be like, oh, you know, I have a problem. I have an issue. Let's deal with it. You know, I was getting real angry, getting in fights, drinking a lot taking drugs and i was just afraid to get help because you know they look at you differently especially coming from the infantry you know we're hard we got to do a job you know you suck yeah. it up drink some water move on and when i finally decided to get help you know i still felt bad for a while i dealt with depression a lot especially you know coming back from combat you know accomplishing all these things and now all of a sudden i'm weak i mean yeah. you know I, I shouldn't be asking for help i shouldn't be looking for it i should be able to deal with everything internally and now that i've gotten the help or I'm, you know, in the process of dealing with it on a daily basis to better myself. You know, it's changing a little bit, but it's what still What did you find that worked for? I went through a lot of therapists. Went through the VA system and it sucks. I hate it. It's just the worst. I found a therapist who's a civilian just to happen to work out that way that she actually works with helping me deal with the symptoms. We haven't got to like the root problem, like what's going on, but she helps me cope and deal with a daily basis and that's what helps for me like my therapy to deal with it or to bring it down is i i ride a bike so i get on it and i just go out i shut down you know when i feel like the world's caving in around me i deal with the anxiety i deal with the depression my memory is just bad so what i do is i just hop on my bike and i go out uh, i'm still looking for other ways to deal with it and uh you know, like you guys were talking about earlier, the best therapy I found so far, honestly, is talking about it. Yep. I actually had a good buddy uh, come over the other night, last night. We were actually talking about it. I deployed 04 to 05 to Iraq. We just talked for hours, and it was nice to get some of that stuff out, you know, some of the stuff that I couldn't go over. And it just, like, made a difference. It's amazing what a couple hours of just talking to someone will do. Absolutely. But like you guys were saying, you know, that relation, it's hard to relate to other people. Uh my girlfriend, she struggles with it. You know, how do you, she doesn't know how to deal with me. I tell her, hey, leave me alone. Walk away from me. I have to call somebody up. You know, she can't. She tries to help me out, but she can't relate with me. I can't explain it to her where she'll understand it. I think, you know, who knows, man. I had an epiphany a while back. I, I would say two to three times a week I'm talking to, to some of my active duty brothers because they call me up. They confide in me, and, um, you know, and we just talk just exactly what you just said. I think the very first step, the very first thing we need to do as soldiers, or anybody for that matter, suffering from PTSD, it doesn't have to be from combat. It can be from anything. But uh, the first thing is self-assessing and having the, the inner strength to recognize that, hey, there's something off here. There's something going on. I need to look into this. I need to figure it out. It's not going good, and I want to do something about it for the positive. That's the very first step. Someone has to want to get better in order exactly. to get better. And, and everybody's different. Again, it's, it's once you make that determination of, okay, something's wrong, I want to fix it. Now you can start taking the steps. And I think the very next thing that needs to happen is that open, open dialogue. And that dialogue needs to be with someone you can relate to, someone who's had very similar, 
if not the same experiences, and they could speak from the heart, uh, and it's genuine. Man, I think that goes a long way towards towards yeah. uh, a success. And, and and one of the one of the misconceptions about PTSD, and again, I'm a doctor, but uh, PTSD doesn't go away. I don't think it's curable, and it's something that you know I realized that this is something I'm stuck with because I can't go back in time and change the events. You know, the foundation, the root cause of, of a lot of this. Now, what I can change is how I cope or how I react during different situations. And and that's something that I've, I've found a lot of success with. And, and I'm, I'm glad to say myself reaching out and talking to people, I've been able to, I, I'm 100% off all medications. I've never been better in my entire life. And it's taken a number of years to reach this goal. But, but like I said earlier, man, um, you know, I call it the black dog or mama's goat, you know, that PTSD, because it's, it's right there in your hip pocket, man. And it will jump out whenever it wants to, and usually at the most inopportune times. Uh, between my wife and I, we've, it's not really a code word, but, you know, she, she's able to recognize now, you know, <clears throat> hey, black dog's with you. And I'm like, yeah, it's one of them days. And, and she's sympathetic towards that. She's understanding towards that. And, and together we work and, and discuss things as best we can. And, um, you know, and, and just like you stated, Mondo, you know, you get on your bike and ride. I'll, I love to go fishing, man. I'll go fishing by myself, you know, no tournament pressure, no anything like that. Just just a day on the water fishing and, you know, just getting out and, and, and clearing your head and, and, and it allows exactly. you to think. And um, all that's without meds, man. And, yeah. Uh, so, Andrew, how, how would somebody get in contact with the Warrior Angels Foundation and, and how is it, at what point, does someone start interacting with you guys to get assistance? If, if you're having any of the symptoms that we discussed about uh, tonight on this show, then it's time to act. You can come to our website, www.waftbi.org, and we have a plethora of information. Uh, we have uh, there where you can sign up for treatment. All our media is, is on there. But what we're not offering is false hope. Uh, we're not selling are pitching anything. Everything that we say or do is backed up by the scientific literature and the clinical application as shown now in 1,300 cases. And what we found, Rudy, is that post-traumatic stress is not a life sentence, even though that was what was told to me. There was yeah. things that I were hung up on. I, I diagnosed clinically with post-traumatic stress, yeah. and I was hung up on things that I couldn't get over until we fixed my neurochemistry. Now I don't have a problem. Those things that are sad, sure, got it. Yeah. But nothing is holding me back like it once was. And it's because I'm balanced, chemically wise. And so what we're saying is we have to find the underlying condition. We can do it with an objective blood test. If somebody has put you on an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety and you're still depressed or you still have anxiety, and that is not the problem. I would agree with you, man, because, uh, you know, myself, I, I stopped drinking. Uh, I started eating healthy. And now I do have some physical injuries that limited my, my uh, PT. But I started exercising as best I could um, within, the, within the constraints. And, you know, over time, I, I, I agree. I think you're spot on, man. That chemical imbalance, that neuro imbalance, you know, something must have happened in, in my body or in my head that we're going to find out Rudy we're going to get you we're going to take care of you and uh, <laughs> for everybody on the panel uh, tonight 
what, what do you have to lose? Let's let's get a blood test and let's see if let's we're looking. Let's do it. Yeah, man, let's rock it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah, all about it. it. Let's open. place I'm it. And I think, you know, just on top of that, it's so incredible to see that if there's, you know, an underlying issue chemically, but the rest of us that have put ourselves out there to, like, open up about this because a lot of vets, they don't, and they feel like they have lost hope. And I, I just think, like... That's uh, a big turtle, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, for me, my, my issues, even though... It may be hard to relate to you as far as incident-wise, but just being able to talk about being, you know, having, what do you call it, the, dog, the black... Yeah, my black, black dog. Your black yeah. dog or whatnot. Just coming on here and being able to talk about it and vocalize it. And, Rudy, I have to tell you, when we talked about this before, what was it, like a week ago, yeah. you said, if you're going to, if you want to heal, like, you have to put your whole self out there. And if you notice, like, on my Twitter page, I, ha I put my blog out there, like, the next day. Because yeah. I'm like, if, I, if I'm going to heal, That's I'm going to do part. this. I'm yeah. going to put it out there. And it, it doesn't have to be about scenario. And I just, like, just for our listeners and whatnot, it's so easy to find one of us and come and reach out to us because we are all go going through it. And even though my symptoms are the same as, you know, Rudy's who, but our, our situations are so yeah. different. You could relate to my feelings, and I can relate to yours, and we can talk about it. And it's so therapeutic just to be able to to go on there and read that, or you know, type your own story. You don't even have to type your story, but just how you're feeling, because there. I mean, look at all of us. We've all been through that. We've all related. We've all feel that sometimes. And like what Andrew said, it's like, yeah, you can be sad or you can be upset, but knowing that there's people out there that support you and that there, it may be something that an underlying chemical issue. But that there's hope, and you don't have to yep. put a gun to your head or take a million pills, you know, to end it. And Andrew, so. I've got I've got two of my of, of my longtime best friends that I'm, I'm gonna put them in direct contact with you guys. Craig and Bill, you know who I'm talking to. You're gonna listen to this podcast because I'm gonna tell you to. And uh, you're gonna reach out and you're gonna get in touch with Andrew. It's it's, it's you got to take the first step, man. You know. Yeah, we, we did a we did a podcast with Joe Rogan last September, uh, number seven hundred on Joe Rogan Experience. I, Got, let's take a listen to that, guys, and do your due diligence. Again, listen, we're not offering false hope. We're not selling anything. We're bringing you information because it would be unethical to do otherwise. But going back to your point, Rudy, about, about stigma, I, I remember back in 2011 when we had the first SF guy that I knew kill himself. And yeah. the thought in my team room, team room was, what a coward. Yeah. What a absolute mentally weak coward. Who yep. does that? And I'm so thankful to go through everything that I got to to get to the point where the gun's to your head to realize this is the slippery slope where you can end up. This is how a high elite performer, a decision maker in situations of life and death, ends up swallowing, uh, you know, a 45. And to to watch that digression, you know, it un I understood like they had they thought they had no other choice. And so that 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 that's where the stigma started to break with me, and it wasn't until I was going through it then I realized, oh my gosh, this is happening a lot more than we're talking about. Yeah, and uh, that's that's why it's important for leaders, for the people that have earned, rightly so, that street credibility from lessons paid in blood, to speak about these things to the youth, to their peers, to civilians. Let them know what's going on. Let them know that this can happen. But offer up solutions because if you're not right. bringing solutions to the table in my team room, you were just called doing some bitching, and we didn't want to hear no right. There you go. No, it's gonna take a, a generational shift, and what's so incredible is like 
Andrew's organization and Mondo coming on here and, you know, Rudy and myself, you know, putting ourselves out there and Mark, you know, teaching us a lot that kind of validating a lot. I just think it's, it's incredible for the new people that are going into the military to know that, Hey, this may, these situations may arise, but there are people that have gone through it. And, you know, if you think about it too, like it takes these type a hard charging guys, you know, to make a difference in the world. And I really think once we start getting those guys fixed, like, I mean, we're the, the vets in the society, it's going to be unstoppable, you know, and, and, and it will make America Cat, back to what it should spot be. Spot on. Spot on, Cat. Think about yeah. all the leaders, the combat leaders now that are zombified from a multitude yep. of bills. What's going to happen when we turn those combat leaders back on and they're now repurposed and reaching full potential in the civil sector? Man, things are gonna start going. It's gonna be incredible. I yep. get goosebumps, man. It's gonna be incredible. Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. So, you know, if you're listening to the podcast and you're in any one of these types of situations, make sure you do reach out to Andrew's organization at WarriorAngelsFoundation.org, and there's a ton of information. The podcast that you're mentioning, Andrew, is on the website, I believe, because I, I did watch it on there. It's directly on there. You can get a ton of information from Dr. Gordon and uh, from Andrew through the podcast and how they went through a lot of their research, what the program does. Just, again, really, really good information. Appreciate. Uh, hey, Robert, I would just caveat anybody out there. What do you have to lose? Yeah. What do you have to Great lose? point. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. Think about it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Mark, I appreciate you coming on and offering uh, your opinions and advice on, you know, your background to the panel. It was very helpful. Mondo, again, appreciate uh, you coming on and uh, joining us and, if you haven't subscribed to us on iTunes or followed us on SoundCloud, please go out there and do that. And also make sure that you rate us on the iTunes podcast. You can give us a rating, leave your comments, tell us a little bit about how you feel about the show. And if there's topics that you feel like you're interested in that we're not covering, make sure you reach out to us and let us know that as well. So on behalf of Cat, for Mike, and uh, Rudy, appreciate everybody being on the show and everybody on the panel. You guys have a good one. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks.